Hey, welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey, and I am so glad that you are here today. Today, we're going to be kicking off a new series that's going to carry us over the next six weeks that I am so excited about. It's one of the mini series that we have in store for you this year, all geared around how do we step into this new year, this new stage of life that's on the horizon, and have a chance to do it over. That all of us, no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, that we've all come out of this season and that what's looking in front of us through this pandemic is a post-pandemic life on the other side. And one of my prayers and desires is I've been thinking through the next kind of six months of where we're going to go is really like how do we set the stage for us to embrace this do-over that God has given us? And to kind of kickstart that, I want to start with a series really geared around one of the most consequential things that you and I do. And to start, to give you a picture to frame really how I want to unpack this over the next six weeks, I want to take you to a, my 10th year wedding anniversary. My wife and I were traveling. We were um, in California. We we're hitting all the national parks. And um, one of the things that we were kind of, kind of mapping out, we would look at a national park and say, where do we want to go next? Is there a national park along the way? And one of the national parks from Yosemite to the Grand Canyon, one of the ones that I said, oh, let's just swing by um, as we're kind of driving towards the Grand Canyon was the Giant Sequoia National Park. Now, it's a whole park dedicated to trees. Uh, my undergrad was essentially biochem. I had to take a couple of biochemical courses around uh, plant life. And while I think plant life biochemistry is really fascinating, I am never going to be accused of being someone with a green thumb. I'm allergic to most living organisms, including people. And so the idea of going and standing out in nature had no appeal to me, which is probably why I budgeted an hour for that park. So we arrive at the park, it's about 8,000 feet up in the air, and I am, literally my breath is taken, not just because I'm 8,000 feet up in the air, which is definitely one of the reasons I have no breath in my lungs at that point, but the other reason was because we saw the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. It was the General Sherman, and it was the giant sequoia that's the center of this um, park. And here's a picture of my wife and I standing at the foot of the General Sherman. You can kind of get a sense. This is a pretty significantly large tree. In fact, when you stand at the base of this tree, it's hard to get the scope of the size and the weight of what this really is. The giant sequoia, specifically the General Sherman, is considered to be one of the largest living organisms on planet Earth. You can shake that out a lot of different ways, but depending on how you shake it, this tree meets the qualifications. This thing is about 120 feet around. It's almost 230 feet tall. It's a magnificent, large tree. And we're standing there, and I, I kept trying to figure out how to take a picture to capture it because I was way too giddy about a tree, and I knew that anyone who knew me would be like, did something happen? Did your brain get damaged? Because I've never seen you this excited about a plant before. And so I kept trying to figure out how do I capture how large this tree is. In fact, General Sherman, about 15 years ago, lost a branch, and the branch that fell off was bigger than any of the other trees you would find in the other 49 states of America. I mean, it was magnificent. And so I'd, I would keep moving back, and I would be like, Jenny, stay there. I'm going to run a mile that way and take a picture. And so I would do that. And this is one of the pictures I took. And you can actually see there's a little white speck right there, and that's my wife. 
And that's the general Sherman, surrounded by these magnificently large trees and what's called the Grove of the Giants is, I think, the thing. I mean, I kept expecting, like, a T-Rex to kind of peep over or little fairies to fly through because it was almost surreal how massive all these things were. So I became obsessed and was like, okay, I'm going to get me a pine cone because I want to take this thing back. In fact, when people discovered these trees initially, people in the east didn't even believe some of the western settlers that they'd actually come across something real because it, didn't, it defied reality. And I saw pine cones on the ground that were like this big, and in my head, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to take this pine cone home, and I'll be like, suckers, you need to go see the giant sequoia because this thing's amazing, and I'm going to take pictures with it. You know, here's our animals. Here's our kids when they're like half a pine cone. Here's my daughter when she gets married. She's a pine cone and a half, right? Like, I just, in my head, I could see it all. And I'm like, Mr. Park Ranger guy, is that a pine cone for this thing here? And he kind of just chuckles, and he's like, no. He's like, this is a pine cone for one of those things. And I was like, this is the seed for that? This magnificent large thing starts off like this? He's like, no, 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 that, that, that's a pine cone. So it has about um, 300 seeds in it. In fact, the General Sherman seed is this small. That's the size. So this tiny little thing grows into this magnificent thing. And as I was kind of reflecting, pondering um, on this message and the weight of what I wanted to talk about in the next six weeks, it kind of struck me that this was a biblical analogy that really captured it well. That the decisions that you and I make have a profound impact in our life. That the decisions you and I make all the time these small, tiny things that feel so insignificant. It's just, you know, it's the choice to hang out with that group or it's the yes to that date or that job. They look small, but they can grow into something big. The choice to kind of fudge on our taxes this year, right, the flirt and our coworker, you know, it's just, it's small. But yet, it can grow into something incredible, right? A little bit can go a really long way when it comes to decision making. It can also come that from wisdom as well. One of the honors I had a few years ago was to teach in a theology course at Boston University. And part of the reason it was so, it was such an honor for me was I knew that Martin Luther King Jr. had graduated from Boston University's um, religion school uh, with, and so the idea of like him graduating there from his, with his PhD and me being able to teach in a course there um, and be a guest lecturer, um, I just kind of felt the significance of that. Of like, wow, because his personal papers are still housed at Boston University. And one of the things that's unique about Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, storyline, many people don't realize, is that while he's at Boston University, there is um, a mutual friend of his that knows this lady who's at New England Conservatory. And that, that mutual friend sets them up on a date that becomes a marriage. But imagine if Martin Luther King Jr. had stayed in Boston and not moved to Atlanta. Just six months after he moves to Atlanta, 
really the spark and the first boycotts kind of start to usher in what we will kind of looking back call the civil rights movement. That one decision to, to not stay here in Boston after he graduated, but to move back to Atlanta had significant decision, had significant outcomes. It was the seed that became the sequoia. And I know for many of us, we can say, well, I'm not Martin Luther King Jr. That's not the weight of my life. That's not what, what I'm doing. That's, you know, that's a historical figure. But I think we can miss the fact that we all make decisions that are historical decisions that just haven't happened yet. Now, not every decision is a historical decision. And I want to help you because even as you think through decision-making, one of the tendencies is to kind of almost free up, freeze up and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Does every decision I make have that kind of consequence to it? And it's like, no. You and I make decisions all the time that don't matter in the grand scheme. This message isn't about those type of decisions. In fact, I want to give you a framework to help you that's a paradigm when it comes to thinking about decisions before we jump in to today's kind of text. It's a a framework built on these two um, parallel kind of spectrums that we make decisions that are inconsequential to consequential, and we make decisions that are reversible to irreversible. Now, this is a really helpful paradigm because every decision you make falls into one of these four categories. And this series is not about this first group, the irreversible inconsequential, which would be what you had for breakfast or lunch today. It's irreversible because you can't get it back in an edible form, and it's inconsequential doesn't really matter. And, you know, you could argue, well, what if I had food poisoning? That, quit being argumentative, okay? You, you get my point. Like, your Fruit Loops this morning or your granola bar or your Eggs Benedict, whatever, irreversible, inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. Uh, reversible, inconsequential is the clothes that you wore, your socks, okay? Like, the socks you picked this morning, you could have picked a different pair. You don't like the socks. You don't like the way they make your feel, little toe feel cramped. Great, go take them off. Reversible, inconsequential, right? Those aren't the decisions I'm talking about. The decisions I'm talking about live on the other side. They're the irreversible, consequential ones, the ones that you can't go back on once you've made it. Those are oftentimes relational ones. They're the significant ones that you get married. You can't unmarry. Yes, you can unmarry in a divorce, but you can't remove that fact that you were married before to that person. It's irreversible. Having a child, irreversible, consequential. There's no receipt with a return policy, right? And, but then there's the reversible consequential ones, which are the ones that are still significant. They have some reversibility to them. You know, maybe if you moved into a different house, it's consequential, yes, but is it reversible? It'll hurt a little bit if you don't end up not liking it. But for most of the time, it's, it's a significant decision that you can kind of walk back on. But it'll have an effect on your life. It'll be a part of your story. And that this is the grid that the next six weeks is focused in on. This is the grid that I'm going to kind of choose to highlight because these, these you don't need to stress about. In fact, one of the things that I frequently am asking myself underneath the surface of everything when I'm trying to make a decision is where does it fall? Stress about these. Think about these. These aren't worth stressing about. I, I, I don't really care. 
I, I eat the same thing for lunch every single day of my life. It is so boring, and I don't care because it's irreversible and inconsequential. I don't even put that much thought in it. I just, going into my week, I'm like, these are the five lunches I'm going to have, and it's the same thing. I don't even have to think about it. These are the ones I spend the bulk of my time reflecting on, thinking about, especially this one. The reality is that we all have some kind of framework that we use to make decisions. But we can miss how those decisions work out in our life. In fact, um, Andy Stanley, who is probably one of the biggest contributors, in fact, if you like anything about the next six weeks, it's all him. He has given us a book this year that he's just released called Better Decisions and Fewer Regrets. But about 15, 16 years ago, I stumbled across a book that he had written that when I was trying to wrestle through life choices, I read that and I realized while reading it that he had unlocked something for me. That I have a huge, huge love for wisdom, but I really want to live my life right. And I remember him saying that the decisions you make determine the direction and the quality of your life. Specifically, those decisions, those two quadrants, those are the decisions that really determine the direction and the quality of your life. But this series is a little different. Like I said, hugely influenced by Andy Stanley and the way that he has shaped my life from a distance, especially in this realm of question asking and bringing to life the book of Proverbs, which is a significant book that I read from regularly and shaping how I think through decision making. But one of the best things that he did was he taught me the power of questions. In fact, so much of my life and how I live my life typically starts from the questions that I'm asking. These series over the next six months that you're going to hear all flowed from a simple question that I asked last year. The how I parent my kids, a simple question. What if I parent my kids in a way that they're the love letter to my grandchildren. What would that mean? What would that look like? That questions have the power to unlock better decisions, right? Better decisions lead to fewer regrets, but better questions lead and set us up for better decisions. And so today I want to kind of lay the groundwork. I want to kind of establish the framework. You already have some type of grid you use to make decisions. What I want to help us with is over the next five weeks, work through five questions that are going to help you make better decisions and have fewer regrets. But today I want to talk about the soil that hopefully these questions are going to be allowed to be planted inside of. That there's not a question today, because those are like the seed. Today's passage I want to look at is really helps us to kind of get clarity about the soil that we plant these seeds in. Because questions are only as good as our honesty in answering them. A question, a really good question, really depends on how much we lean into it. And fortunately for us, one of the wisest men who've ever lived, a man named King Solomon, when he was stepping into the role of being a king and he feels the weight of what God was doing in and through his life, the Israel as a nation was growing, it was, it was developing, it was building trade partners, it was growing in influence and affluence, and Solomon felt the weight of leading a nation that was bigger than him. He, he thought generationally, and he said, okay, 
How do I prepare my kids for the weight of royalty? And that what came out of that question was the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs originally was a parenting manual written by Solomon for his children, which is why you frequently see it if you've read it, my son, my daughter, you know, he's the, because he was talking to his children, trying to prepare them for the weight of the world that was going to be on their back. This is why one of the things that we do in our household almost every single night is we read a proverb and we discuss it with our daughter. And when Henry's a little older, he'll experience the same thing because I, I'm, I don't want to teach my kids just what to think. I really want to teach them how to think because I know one day I'm not going to be there. Solomon knew one day he was not going to be there and he wanted to lay the foundation for how to think with wisdom, distinctly godly wisdom that would lead to life. And he writes in Proverbs 27, verse 12, a passage that's meant to be the soil for the conversation over the next five weeks. He says this, the prudent see danger and take refuge. Like Solomon frequently does throughout this, he's about to contrast. He's about to set a, a kind of a distinction for his kids because he's always in the midst of even in the Proverbs trying to give them a choice in the life that they want to live. He's helping them always realize there's always decisions in front of you. And as a king and a queen, as part of the royal court, you have consequential decisions you have to make regularly. So he says the prudent, which is another way of saying the wise, right? He's going to use a lot of words throughout the book of Proverbs that are essentially the wise and the fool and the simple. Those are the three general categories um, that he likes to use in decision-making frames. He'll use a fourth one called the sluggard, but it's a little different. And these kind of constant compare and contrast are always putting onto the kids the, the very clear distinction. Because many of us have a challenge in that we don't see the seed. We, we just see the seed. We don't see the sequoia. We don't see what our choices are going to turn into. And he's trying to train his kids to see the sequoia in the seed that they plant. And so he says the prudent, they see danger. And they take refuge. It's actually, in the original language that he writes, this is actually really pithy. There's a lot of word plays. It, it doesn't rhyme, but it's close to the Hebrew equivalent of rhyming. It's meant to be this punchy, memorable statement. He doesn't want them to forget it. And he says what separates the prudent from the simple. He's like the prudent have an ability to see the danger and take refuge. And what, what he means when he says see the danger is not always what's right in front of you, but to see and to connect the dots of what, what's right in front of you today can become tomorrow. See, the prudent have an ability to see how today's decisions turn into tomorrow's outcomes. They have an ability to see how today's habits becomes part of tomorrow's lifestyle. They have an ability to see how today's purchases, today's investments, today's financial decisions turn into tomorrow's financial positions. They, they have an ability to connect the dots and see how today impacts tomorrow, how today's conversation can impact tomorrow's relationship. The prudent see it, they connect the dots to it, and they respond accordingly. And in this situation, they see the danger and they hide. But he says the simple, same dangers, so the, the kind of premise is that Two people walk up, they see the exact same thing. One sees the danger and hides from it. 
the simple, they keep going, and they pay the penalty. That there's this kind of two people, same thing, two different reactions. And the reason why is the simple doesn't connect the dots. The simple doesn't see how today impacts tomorrow. The simple doesn't see how the danger right in front of them, which is implied in this passage, they don't see how that danger can be there, how it can destroy them, the impact it could have on them. So what, is it, what does the simple do? They're like, meh, and they keep moving forward. And they pay the price for that decision. I mean, I remember growing up, and you'd do something really stupid as a small kid, and my mom would be like, were you thinking? Like, what were you thinking when you did that? Probably you never had that said to you, but I got said that to me. Like, what were you thinking driving 85 down that road? I don't know. I was thinking there was no cop there to pull me, Mom. Right? Like, I mean, what were you thinking? Because oftentimes, the simple isn't thinking about tomorrow. They're only thinking about today. They're thinking about how mad they are and how what their parents just said to them and how they're going to stick it back to them. They're thinking about how, you know, that friend or that girl or that relationship or that purchase on Amazon. It's all about the now and the immediate, not about what happens. They just see the seed. They don't see the sequoia. But the prudent do. Which is why it's really essential for us to make sure that we are people who walk this path. If we're going to be people who lean into these five questions over the next five weeks. Because if you don't have the capacity to see the danger, notice, both see the same thing. It's what the simple doesn't see that sets the stage for them to pay the penalty. Both the prudent and the simple see the same thing, but it's what the prudent doesn't see that sets the stage for them to pay the penalty. I think this should cause us to pause a little bit when we have to walk into places of consequential decisions. One of the things I frequently say to myself is, especially if I'm in a situation where people I know, I respect, who are wiser or who have insight, look at me and say, I think this is a dumb decision, or I don't think this is the wisest decision. Now, if I'm simple, I'm going to plow straight through it because I'm going to assume they're wrong. Well, Mom, you don't get it. This is perfect for me, or she's perfect for me. Or I need that. Or I want that. But the prudent actually say, what do they see that I don't see? The prudent actually are willing to assume they're wrong. I was in a conversation with uh, someone recently, and I actually said something to them, and, and I could see it. I was challenging the choice they were making because I saw some things in the decision that I was like, I think this is a disaster waiting to happen. And they said, oh, really? Tell me more, which normally I don't tell people more because most people aren't really open. But I, I, I thought this person was open, so I said, okay, here's why. And I saw it on their face, and I was like, I'm done. I'm not talking anymore because I saw it. I saw the shift, and they didn't, they didn't assume they were wrong. They assumed I was wrong. They just, okay, moving on. I was like, all right, I appreciate that, not sharing that wisdom with you anymore because 
I think the prudent have to take a step back and the prudent notice maybe they see something I don't see. And what that really is is humility. The recognition that maybe I'm wrong. So when I'm processing really heavy decision, one of the things I like to do is recognize that there's a soil, that there's some probably things, there's some things that I see, but maybe some really wise people see things I don't see. And I ask the question, what assumptions do I have that could be wrong? What are the assumptions under this decision? And as a standard rule of thumb, even as a pastor, I don't use what I sometimes refer to as the God card. I don't say, well, this is what God wants me to do. Because the moment I throw that card on the table, it distorts and it, it hinders me from being able to make a really good decision. And for some of us, there's decisions we're facing right now that we're trying to work through, we're trying to lean into, that it's, we're either paralyzed or we're moving forward. And I believe that the right question has the power to completely transform us in that decision we're making right now. Maybe at some point in the future, I'll do kind of a, a digital series on how to discern God's will so that, uh, you know, we can actually kind of work through. Like, what does it mean when God desires something for our life? How do we know that? Because there is a way to kind of discern that. But what I'm cognizant of is that oftentimes I can play that card early and it completely limits others from being able to give me advice. If I tell somebody on the phone or if you told somebody on the phone, this is what God wants me to do, how do you respond to that? You put me in a position to say, well, God's a liar or you're a liar. And I think one of the best postures when we're wrestling through, especially in the early stages of decision making, is to say, okay, what is it that they see that I don't see? And God, help me to be humble, help me to be wise, help me to be prudent and not simple. And that if you walk with that posture, it doesn't paralyze you in decisions. It gives you a better perspective when you make decisions. And in fact, what the writer of Proverbs does is so helpful is he actually gives us a little bit more. He gives us some examples of this that he actually tells us in 13 and 14 how we can make those decisions, how we can understand and get clarity around those decisions. And, and so after verse 12, he, he gives us two funny examples. The first example he gives us is around this idea of the individual who comes to you and you're an investment banker, you're someone who's trying to make a decision, and you've got a person in front of you, they've taken the coat of someone for security. So back in the day, if you wanted to make a loan, if you wanted to make a deal, um, you would actually take the coat from someone, and that would typically serve as collateral. And you would do, do something like that because you didn't know the person. And so the, in Proverbs 27, 13, um, it actually says, if you meet someone who doesn't take the coat of someone that they don't know when they make a financial investment, you should take their coat instead. And then in verse 14, there is... Um, a verse that says, if you loudly bless your neighbor in the morning, they may see it as a curse. And this is really relevant in our household. Because in our household, um, I am grumpy. And my son is grumpy. And my wife and my daughter, they are essentially um, little rays of sunshine. And those rays of sunshine are always happy. They're always 
You know, it's like they wake up and it's like everything is great. Everything is grand. I got the whole wide world in the palm of my hand, right? Like, it's like everything is marvelous. Henry and I wake up and we're angry. We're angry at the world. We're angry at the sun. We're angry at the bed. We're angry at our eyeballs that they, they you know, are on lids. Like, we're just mad people. And so um, one of the things that my wife and my daughter have learned with us is that if you come rolling up when we're sleeping and you're all, everything is great and everything is grand, we're not going to see that as like a really like great way of waking us up in the morning. In fact, we kind of don't like you for a moment. And, and Solomon uses these two analogies to communicate something. He's trying to convey to them that the prudent have an ability to recognize how investing in someone who is being foolish or how someone who can't see how that personality is kind of a grumpy person, and if you walk in and you bless them loudly, it's going to make them angry. They, the simple don't connect the dots, but the prudent do. And this is really important because if we're going to be people who respond to the five questions over the next five weeks, we have to be humble enough. We have to have soil that is humble enough to admit and to realize that maybe there's some things we don't see that others around us would be able to see. And one of the ways that we foster that is through questions. Now, I recognize for some of us, even as I'm kind of walking through this passage, that maybe what's bubbling up inside of you is the realization of like, man, well, I really wish I'd had those five questions, you know, maybe five years ago. Because I've already been there, and I've done that, and I've got the t-shirt, and I've got the pain to prove it. And I want to remind you that ultimately, while Solomon was trying to set the stage for better decisions and fewer regrets, some of you and have already discovered ultimately what Solomon knew is that our decisions determine our story. But what Solomon didn't know in the midst of all of his wisdom that we know is that no matter where you are, no matter what your storyline is, there's still hope for it. That when Jesus steps into this earth, he's coming into a group of people who have been stuck in a storyline for thousands of years. Now, they think the storyline is that the problem is government oppression on the outside. But Jesus comes in trying to reframe the storyline, the deeper, heavier storyline of the one inside. And that when Jesus steps on to the stage, that he is there to make the point that no matter what your story is right now, there is another story. See, even embedded in this text, written by Solomon and the writers that flow out of Solomon's wisdom literature, is the idea that God has a desire for you. That God has a life and a will. That God has a way for his people to live. And that's one of the reasons that when Jesus stepped onto planet earth, one of the things that people began to call him out of some of his teaching, what they called his people, was the way. That Jesus was showing them the way, not just to a life filled with better decisions and fewer regrets, although those are awesome. 
He was showing them a way to life, period. One that wasn't controlled or determined by what you had done or what had been done to you. One that wasn't controlled and dictated by the decisions that you had made yesterday or in your yesterdays or even today. That one of the things that I keep in my backpack that I showed you earlier is this little um, tiny bag that has a sequoia seed. But the other one is this yellow ticket. And it's a story I'm not going to get into right now because it doesn't really matter. What matters is it's a reminder to me of the power of decisions and that sometimes the best decisions we make aren't even as obvious as we think they are in the moment. And this is one of the better decisions I ever made in my life. That's why I, I keep it. It's a reminder of the choices that I get to choose every single day. But the single best decision I ever made was in that moment when what hit some of you hit me too. That the decisions I made had determined the story that I was living. That the story, the story I was in. And I had a sense of hopelessness and despair because I was trapped by a story I had written and I didn't know how to write a better one. That no matter what the chapter was that flowed next, it couldn't erase all the chapters that came before it. And then August 7th, 2001, for the first time with an incredible amount of clarity, I started to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. That on the cross with two beams, three nails, with his blood, with his death, that he set the stage for everything that I'd ever done to be completely undone. And that in responding to him, that I wasn't just kind of trying to overcome the poor decisions I've made, that by responding to him, I could actually start to move into a new storyline. One that he'd intended all along for me. In fact, buried into the Christian faith actually is this beautiful imagery See, one of the ways we respond to this good news, this idea that no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter who you are, that there is another story God has for you that he wants to write through your life, one of redemption and grace and freedom. All of that on the other side is, is it's, it's through repentance. And so here's one of the images of repentance. I'm like, oh, this is so simple and brilliant what God does. Um, so let's say you and I are making the distortion, right? So it's in this passage, right? The simple keep going. They keep moving this way. So they're going with what they'd already decided to do. And that what marks the wise is that they see it and they turn from it and they start going the other direction. That same image in this text is the biblical concept in the New Testament of repentance, it's a recognition of, God, I've been moving this way with my life. I've been doing these things. I've been making these choices. I've been living these habits. I've been thinking this way. And it keeps taking me further and further and further away from what you have for me. And what simply repentance is, is it's not like, ah, angels coming in. It's not like some fancy person on a stage wearing a bunch of garb and you doing a bunch of little steps and hoops and hops and jumps and, like, fancy, like, Biblical little phrases that sound confusing. It's simply saying, 
oh God, I am so sorry. What am I doing? I want to move towards you. Like, it's really that simple of turning from what we have done and turning to him and what he has done. And in that simple movement, in that simple shift, it ushers in a whole new life brought through repentance. And that regardless of the next five weeks and the questions, the best question you can ever answer is what are you going to do with what Jesus has done for you? Are you going to ignore it? Are you going to walk past it? Or maybe for some of us who are wrestling through this whole Christian faith thing, that maybe what we need to do is look into it, to actually wrestle with it, not just dismiss it. And for some of us, maybe you've already come to terms with who he is. You just need to respond to it. And for those who are maybe wrestling with it or ready to respond to it, I want to encourage you to go to EncounterChurch.com forward slash faith. And for those wrestling through it, there's a link there. I would love to send you a book, free book, to just kind of help guide you through the questions you have around who God is, who Jesus is. And for some of you who are ready to kind of respond and you're just like, okay, what does it practically mean to repent? And how do I do that? And what am I doing that from? from? Uh, I have a video on there to kind of walk through a little bit of what that good news is and a way that you can kind of let us know, hey, I want to start following Jesus. I want to start walking in that way today. And that to help you, we want to send you some resources to get you started in that journey. But for all of us, no matter who you are, here's my encouragement, here's my challenge. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to start a series of five weeks with five different questions for you to begin to use as a framework and a filter to make choices in life. And to help it grow well, to help those seeds begin to sprout well, I want to challenge you to memorize this passage in Proverbs 27.12. To commit it to memory. To write it down, to, to look at it regularly, and to say the prudency danger and take refuge. But the simple keep going and pay the penalty. And if you and I begin to say this, to memorize this, then what we'll do is we'll start to cultivate the soil that the next five weeks are going to be able to sprout and grow. Because the decisions determine the quality and the direction of your life. And better questions lead to better decisions and fewer regrets.